us. It's an honor again to be with you this morning, and thank you for the privilege to uh, study God's Word with you. Uh, as I prepared this week, I was remind, reminded of a statistic I looked up, and I just want to share it with you. It uh, came from Auto Week. It said Progressive recently did, a, a Progressive Insurance, uh, recently did a, a survey, and they asked more than 11,000 people uh, over a course of a year how far from home they were when they had an accident, a car accident. You know, 52% of car accidents occur within five miles of your home. You all have heard that, right? In fact, it goes on to say that 23% of accidents occur within one mile of your home. Accidents were more than twice as likely to take place from one mile of your home compared to 20 miles from your home. And only 1% of car accidents occur more than 50 miles from your home. So, why, why start a sermon this morning uh, with that statistic? Well, why preface it with car accident geography? Well, well, this morning, we're considering a text that is probably one of the most beloved and familiar texts in all of Scripture. In fact, nurseries are themed around this psalm. Uh, basically, almost every funeral you'll ever go to highlights this psalm. This may be the most sought-out passage, along with Genesis 1 and 1 Corinthians 13, for non-Christians who are just looking at the Bible for, for liter literary beauty. And they're just saying, wow, this is a beautiful piece of literature. And honestly, as, as we read it this morning, you, you may also recognize that this may have been the very first passage of Scripture that you ever memorized. So what's the point? <laughs> It's easy to get comfortable in this text. It's easy to think, ah, I know this one. I, I like this one. And it's incredibly important that we stay alert. We could have a car accident here this morning, and we want to avoid that. We want to be open to what the Holy Spirit might show us and, and accurately look at this and then make personal application. So let's, let's commit that to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak through your Holy Spirit. We need you again this morning. We pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would allow us to understand anew, and that we would sing new songs in our hearts as we consider you and who you are. And may we be changed even as we read together and study. God, be in this place. In Christ's name, amen. A picture is worth a thousand words, but an experience is worth a thousand pictures. I have no idea who said that. You can look it up. You will not find. Is someone people attribute it to Albert Einstein for reasons I can't figure out. Some people attribute it to this computer science pioneer. But a picture is worth a thousand, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then an experience is worth a thousand pictures. But I think it's good to think about that this morning. We live in a world that highlights words, in fact, drivel. We live in a world where we can't get enough newspaper clippings on our computer. We can't get enough articles to read. In fact, so much so that we center our lives around these social media accounts where we're just throwing out our own words, our own quotes, our own ideas. 
only to be trumped by that by the younger generation of saying, you know, words aren't even enough. I'm going to take pictures of what I do all day on social media, on TikTok and Instagram, and I'm going to take a picture of me eating my dinner. And it's all too often that we center our lives around these pictures, and we easily forget that the experiences of life should be what is held in more regard than the words or the pictures that we kind of frame this image of our life. We should be seeking out real experiences. And I love, I considered a Jim Carrey quote, I saw an article, uh, an interview with him this week. He's a famous comedian. Obviously, in the 90s, he was probably the biggest actor in, in the world and commanding the most amount of money. And he withdrew from all of that because he became disenchanted with this idea of image. He became a painter. And he was interviewed, and he was talking about the idea of why he doesn't take selfies. You know what a selfie is? You snap a picture of yourself. Why he doesn't take selfies with fans. And he said, I, I try not to be unkind to people, but I'd much prefer saying hello and who are you and what are you doing today to giving them a selfie because selfies stop life. You go, eh, and he contorts his face like only Jim Carrey could. And then that's going to go on Instagram and give people this false sense of relevance. Well, I think Jim Carrey would agree with this quote this morning, that if a picture is worth a thousand words, then an experience is worth a thousand pictures. And that's what I think we have here in Psalm 23 as we consider this anew. We have a Psalm of David, which is words on a page, in which he's saying something true that he believes to be true about God and what that means about him. And then to support that, to frame that, to show that, he's going to paint two pictures. And he's going to paint two pictures to, to say, yeah, there's richness to this, there's truth to this. And that leads him to a praise, to a realization of a promise and an experience that he has now and that he's, he thinks he will have forever. So as we uh, consider this, as, as Keith said, to, to open your copy of God's Word, feel free. Some of you might have memorized this, would be my guess. So feel free to quietly recite along with me as we read Psalm 23. If you memorize this in the King James, please don't correct me as I use the ESV this morning. But let's read Psalm 23 this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, as we consider this passage this morning, I want us to look at the word. The words or the statement that David says is true, both about God and himself. That's what we call a posit. It's basically holding up this 
theorem, if you will, of saying, I think this is true. And then I want us to expand out and look at the pictures that David uses to support that. And then finally, consider these promises that are found in the experience that David has. So, number one, David's posit. What is he saying true here? He says, I shall not want because I have a good provider and protector. I shall not want because I have a good provider and protector. What is the word or true statement here? Well, let's, let's consider verse 1 as we have that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In, in order to understand this as a posit, I think it's important that we diagram the sentence. I don't know if high school students still diagram sentences. I had it like beat into my brain. So we start with the subject, right? So what is the subject of this sentence? The Lord. But that's the Lord in all caps. And as we learned last week, what, what does that mean? It's the idea of Yahweh. The idea of going back to Exodus 3, where he would have understood that this is God at the burning bush telling Moses, I am who I am. And what's, what's God doing in that? What's he revealing about himself when he says that? He's revealing his eternity. I am who I am. His reality, his glory, his holiness. His independence of Moses and everything he's created. And, and conversely, Moses stands in complete dependence on God. Everything that is created gets its existence and gets its significance from I am who I am. And that is who God is revealing himself here. It is also how God chose to reveal himself in his covenant. So this is the same name God used when he made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with Moses, and on into the kingdom with David. This God is the subject is, is whom David is speaking. So that's the subject. What is the subject doing? What, what's happening in this sentence? What's the verb? Is. How do you define is? Well, it's a famous 90s quote, but how do you define it? It means to exist or to be present, to be in that space. So how does David describe God and his existence? What, what adjective does he use to say, this is how God exists to me? He says he's, think of the adjective here, it's mine, it's possessive. God, the Yahweh, this holy, independent God, belongs to me. And I to him. That's an amazing juxtaposition. That's, that's mind-blowing, that this independent God is mine. And he's mine as, as what? What's the, uh, the object here? Well, shepherd. We're going to get to that. But what's he mean by that? Well, David is saying something. It, consider that it, it means, as I said, that it's the idea of a caring leader and provider. He's saying, God is my personal caring leader and provider. So David is saying something true about God. God is a caring provider who knows David personally. It's why you can say, my. David would have been known this to be true as he understood scripture. You see, 
as I said, think all the way back to Exodus 3. He would have known that not only did God reveal himself to Moses in that way, but he actually delivered on his promises. He, God says in Exodus 3, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. Go tell the elders of, of Israel, I'm taking the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land like I had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to do this, Moses. Go tell everyone. And he did that. And then he led the Israelites. He led his people through the wilderness like sheep. And into the promised land where they were fed, where they had milk and honey as was described. David would have known that God did all of that. And that he lived up to his promises. And that he revealed himself as a personal God to his forefathers. And that's what he can trust now. So What's the therefore? The statement about God leads David to a statement about truth of himself. If this is true of God, if God is my caring, personal provider who watches over me, then what does that mean for me? Well, second half, I shall not want. Just spoiler alert here, that does not mean I have whatever I want. It does not mean I selfishly pursue whatever I want. The word here in Hebrew is actually mean my, all my needs are met. I have what I need so much so that it's actually dependent upon the giver, as you think about this in Hebrew. It's the idea that what God gives me is good, and it makes me content. It's lasting. And so that's the truth here. That's what David just starts a psalm in which we're all familiar. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd, my caring, personal provider. I shall not want. Well, can you say that this morning? Is that your personal statement? Regardless of your circumstances, do you know that you have a caring provider in God? Can you say my? Can you say the God, the holy God of the universe is my caring provider? Can you say as a caring provider that he's your savior? It's really what a caring provider is, isn't it? If you can, please, then let's feast on the riches of the picture David uses. If you're unsure, then just consider these pictures with me. Well, we consider the, the truth, right? The, the positive, the true statement. God's a caring provider, therefore I shall not want. And this personal nature of it. So if a picture now is worth a thousand words, how does David say, and this is how I know this to be true? Well, we know from other Psalms that he could have walked through the history from Abraham, all the things God did for Abraham. All the things God did for Isaac. All the things God did for Jacob. All the things God did for Moses and the Israelites. He could have done that. In fact, he, other Psalms, you'll find it. It's there. He walks a historical narrative to defend. I told you God is who he says he is. I told myself I needed to worship this God. He is who he says he is. He doesn't do that here. And he also doesn't do something like we looked at at Psalm 1 a few weeks ago. Or one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73, where it's this comparison of the righteous 
This is how the righteous live. This is how the wicked live. This is how the righteous will die. This is how the wicked will die. This constant comparative. He doesn't do that either. He chooses instead to paint two pictures. I'm not very good at painting. I wish I was. But I love to look at beautiful, beautiful works of art. And sometimes you look at it and you, you see it as a whole, but then you want, you want to focus in on certain sections. And so what, what are these pictures that David is painting? Well, David paints two pictures. He paints pictures of provision and protection. He paints a picture of God as shepherd and God as host. God as shepherd and God as host. I love this because these are two pictures that David would have known. These are things that he understood. And, and I love that because God made us human beings. He made us physical beings. I think John Piper talks about this in either Pleasures of God or, or Desiring God. But he didn't make us as angels. We aren't primarily spiritual beings. We're physical beings. That means they mean we walk earth, we see cows, we understand what it means to see a sheep. God gave us sheep. They provide wool. It's funny, they provide wool. If you grew up in a Sunday school, you may think they provide cotton because you pin little cotton on the sheep when you go to Sunday school class. But sheep actually provide wool. And they keep us warm. They have value. You can eat lamb. It's, it's good, I'm told. And there's goodness in it. But that truth of life is actually just a little bit of the greater reality that, that livestock walking around has a purpose, and the greater purpose is to show us something true about God. That's you and your marriage. That's you as a father. That's you as a, as a mother, as a wife. We have these physical opportunities to show us something, to paint a picture. And, and David knew that. David knew what it meant to be a shepherd. He knew what it meant to care for livestock. It was not a very glorious job. It's interesting that he would choose to describe God that way. So what does a shepherd do? I, as I mentioned, we're in familiar territory, right? You could spend 100 hours talking about what it meant to be a shepherd in biblical times. In fact, there are studies out there. There are way better sermons than this on that idea. There are all, all of that. Go find it. In fact, our brother Julian has actually done some of that study. He, he was just really meditating on Psalm 23 and, and really considered that. And I encourage you, he's next door after this. Go find him. Have a conversation about biblical livestock. It'll be an encouragement to you both. But I, I want to limit ourselves this morning to, to two things. What we know about a shepherd from David's life and what we know about a shepherd from this text. So, David knew what it meant to be a shepherd. We know from his life what he was the youngest son of Jesse. You know what that meant? He got stuck taking care of the livestock. It was usually the youngest son's job. Not the honor of the, the oldest son, but the youngest son. And we know that because we get into 1 Samuel 16. And Samuel is going to Jesse, who's David's dad. And he has been told by God that I have Saul, and I'm not pleased. I want to anoint a new king. Go to Jesse. 
anoint one of his sons. And so Samuel goes through all the sons. It must be this guy. He's tall and handsome. It must be this guy. And he gets all the way through seven of them or whatever, and he can't. He says, God's not showing me that this is the, king, the next king of Israel. Jesse, do you have another son? And Jesse says, yes, David, but he's doing what? He's out keeping the sheep. He's not here. He's not at our camp. He's not at our home. He's out keeping the sheep in some remote place. And then we even flip over the next page into chapter 17. Now we fast forward, and he's going to the battle where his brothers are with Goliath, who's taunting the Israelites. And he says, I, I, need, I need to fight him for the name of God. But he can't do it right away. He has to go to Saul, the king, and convince him that he should be able to fight. And what does he use as his defense? He said, I'm a shepherd, and I've had to use my rod and my staff to kill both lions and bears. Oh, my. And that, that's his defense, so he knows what it meant to hold that rod and the staff. He knows what it meant to see a predator coming at him and to be in the mouth of one, have in its mouth one of these sheep. He knows it. He also would have known at this point in his life probably what it meant to be a gracious host. He would have known either as king or at least as you can read in Samuel 16 and 17, in the presence of a king, he was called before Saul to play and, and to, to sing, to suit Saul who was tormented. And so that would have been this experience. You don't enter the court of the king without the idea of being cleaned, without the idea of Put on your best garments without the idea of being cared for. Probably even food that would have been better than what he would have found back at Jesse's camp. He would have known what it meant to have this great host. So, I, I love that because these are familiar pictures. So, how, how do we want to, to view this this morning? Well, I, I want to be even more helpful. We see several things in these pictures of, of God as shepherd and God as host that are, that are really painting what God is doing. They're giving flesh to these images. And I want us to fly by these. I, I don't want to spend a, a ton of time, but I want to go verse by verse with the realization that I'm not going to draw out because that's the beauty of this psalm, friends. The beauty of it is if we draw it out, you will see the image of God. You will see pictures of God, and you will, I hope your heart's stirred that you can make application in your own life this morning. But, but we're going to fly by. So first, let's look at God as shepherd. Well, what is God doing? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The sheep are taken by God to a place where they need to be. It says, he makes me lie down. The shepherd forces me to lie down in a place that's good for me. The shepherd compels me, and I obey, to lie down somewhere that will provide me the food and the water I need. But it's more than this. These aren't just pastures and waters. These are green pastures and still water. So not only is he providing, he's caring. These are good and peaceful. The shepherd could have found a number of places to, to eat and drink, but he leads them to good places. 
and he leads them. They are not in control or charge. He leads them to these places and says, stop, rest here. So what do these green pastures and still waters do for the sheep? Well, number three, verse three, he restores my soul. This kind of almost seems like in the English translation, like a break. Like, where did the picture go? Now we're into application. He restores my soul. Why don't like sheep have souls? Not sheep heaven. What is he saying here? Well, the, the translation in Hebrew is actually more that he revives my life. He restores my vitality. He restores my fullness of life. So he's saying, because he made me go into places that were good, I was not only sustained, I was revived. Do you see God do you see ways in which God is making you lie down in quiet places this morning? Well, let's move on. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. The shepherd is taking them on the path that is right. We think of righteousness as this holiness, and that's true, but it means in this passage the right path. It means that the shepherd knows where he's going and he's taking them the right way. The shepherd knows the best way, the safest way, the way home. He knows the path that will lead them back to the fold. And he's making them take that path for their own good. He knows how to get to the destination and takes the sheep that way. Well, why? Because the sheep are his. I did not grow up in the Middle East. I grew up in Indiana. And, <laughs> thank you. And, uh, and I did, you know, I, we did not have sheep, but we had lots of livestock. In fact, I'd be driving down country roads, and it, it happened more than once. I'd come around a corner, probably too fast in high school, and there would be livestock in the road, which is not a good thing to hit in your Honda Civic. And so I'd stop, and I would, you know, someone would call somebody or you'd see another farmer coming out to kind of get, because what would happen? A cow would get out, a horse would get out, some, something got out of its pen. And it would take kind of the whole community to bring it together. But I did not stop and think, well, Elsie the cow has gotten out or Mr. Ed the horse has gotten out. It was, that's Roy Blair's cow. And he needs to get back in the pen. So what am I going to do? I'm going to call Roy Blair. And say, Roy, your, your, your cow's out on... Uh, State Road 32, and help him. I didn't really help. I wasn't a farmer. But someone would help him get the cow back in the pen. But just remember there that the shepherd's care for the sheep is because he has ownership of them. It's, it's his reputation that's on the line. If he leads the sheep down a bad path, it brings danger to those sheep. It could compromise their ability to eat, their ability to clothe themselves, their ability to sustain themselves as a, as a family, as a tribe. And so it's on his name that they are led down those paths. John Piper preaches a whole sermon on the application of what it means that we would walk in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And the confidence that we can get 
by praying to God for good things because it's God's reputation that he's made at stake because he's the shepherd. Commend it to you. But do you have the confidence as a Christian this morning that God will lead you down the paths that are best for you? Because he receives the most glory by your journey on these right but possibly difficult paths. Well, he continues, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Well, we see pretty quickly here that paths of righteousness doesn't always mean still waters and green pastures, does it? This is pretty bleak. This is poetry. We see that the journey, that the path may actually cause the sheep to be frightened. That the valley may be a place of darkness with difficult terrain that only the shepherd knows. Perhaps predators or thieves lurk in the night. The sheep, however, they're not afraid. And why aren't they afraid? Because the shepherd is with them. I went to Disney World for two days this week to meet uh, a, a college friend I hadn't seen in a decade, and it was a great time seeing, seeing he was an old tennis buddy of mine, and, and we hung out with his wife and their kids. And uh, we went to Disney for one day. We went to Magic Kingdom, and I was amazed as I was studying this passage, the experiences of my children writing, It's a Small World, to Pirates of the Caribbean. It's a small world. I had to keep Ryle from jumping out of the boat. He was going to go grab something, be part of the show. I, there was a lot of space on either side. You could have sat two more people on Pirates of the Caribbean because all three of my kids were tucked up under my arms. Why? Because it's dark, because it was uncertain, because it was scary. And that's a lot like sheep. Their dependence is on their shepherd in uncertainty. Their dependence is on their shepherd when they're in dark places. Notice also the change in person when we get here. What I mean is how David is referring to God. David's not referring to God anymore as he leads me, the shepherd leads me. What's he actually saying? He's, he says... Because you are with me. He's moved from talking about God to talking to God. And he starts to address God directly. In pointing that out, Piper says the following. I think the switch to the more intimately you, precisely when he enters the valley of the shadow of death, is a universal experience among God's people. Indeed, among all men in one form or another, the crises of life draw us closer to God. We're prone to talk about God when we are in green pastures, and we're prone to cry out to God when we enter some fearful ravine. Well, back to my friends at Disney World. I was amazed catching up in their life. They have three beautiful girls, I think 10, 8, and 6. But I did not know something until I was with them this week. The same day my son was born, which is almost five years ago, they gave birth to a stillborn son the exact same day. They repeated the same thing 12 months later. And hearing them talk, they said, the wife said, 
I, I don't know that I had truly worshipped God for who he was until I went through this experience. I, I held up motherhood as an idol in my life. And I don't know that I worshipped God truly for who he is and what he wants for me until I went through this dark valley. And that is what David's saying here. He's crying out to God, not about God, because he's left with nothing but God in this valley so the question this morning is do you welcome those moments those disciplines of God as something that may be good for you to bring you to God well what is in that valley what is comforting them well it's the rod and the staff they comfort me notice that these are the tools of the shepherd so these tools of the shepherd, as you go to 1 Samuel 17, are how he beats down the lion and the bear, right? But do you know that these are the same tools that they also hit the sheep with? These, these external protecting tools also keep the sheep on the path. And so this idea of seeing that discipline, for me, is my good, as it's also my protection. That is with them in the valley. Well, now he moves. There's a transition here. He moves from the shepherd to the idea of a host as we, we move on to verse 5. He, you may remember before COVID, maybe you stayed in someone's home. It's kind of an intimate, dependent experience, isn't it? You know, they, they often feed you. They give you a bed to sleep in. They give you their restroom, their bathroom. They give you towels. They, they take care of you with everything that you might need, and you experience hospitality from, from them. In fact, just trying to turn the TV on in somebody else's house or accessing the Internet is like an experience in itself, right? You're dependent on the graciousness of your host, and that's what we see here in verse 5. He says, you prepare a table for me. In Hebrew, that literally means like feast or supper. Well, I've read this passage and seen a number of different interpretations that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It could mean that this is after the battle and that the vanquished enemies are forced to sit at the table of the victor's supper. I don't think that's what it means. I think what this means is in the house of my host, I am so protected that I can relax, recline, and enjoy a meal and hospitality and communion even while my enemies are watching because they can't do anything because of the protection of my host. That's the communion we have with God. There's a, there's a recent Oxford study that says that communal eating increases social bonding and a feeling of well-being and enhances one's sense of contentedness an embeddedment in a community. That's what this communal eating is doing. You're embedded in this identity of who your host is, and you're protected by how good of a protector he is. So what is your contentment in God this morning? Well, next, you anoint my head with oil. In biblical times, that would have meant a guest walks through the house, they would have put oil on their head before the meal because they would have been on this long journey on the path. It would have been dusty and dirty and smelly, and this would have refreshed them, almost like wiping your face off and getting it clean before you sit down at dinner like we do. We wash our hands. That's somewhat of the extent here, but it's also this honor, this, this beauty, and it's 
And it goes further. Now they sit down and there's my cup overflows. Well, this reference means to fatten my cup, that there's just so much that you're not only just providing for me, you're giving me more than I ever could want. Well, where's the level of your cup this morning? It seemed David's overflow overflowed as he considered who God was. Well, that's a flyby. I may have offended everyone in the room this morning because we could preach a sermon on every one of these phrases, right? We, we could just stop. There, there's probably a hundred sermons on each one of these phrases, but I just want us to draw out the main points that there is a God who is a shepherd and a host. And, and likely there are phrases in here that are special to you, that have been important to you at different times in your life, and, and those pictures are something you might be keeping. You know, I keep pictures of my, my, my children and my wife on my desk at work. They're special to me. They, they, I remember certain moments of times, and, and maybe these resonate with you. These pictures are rich. However, it's easy for me to want to cling to a picture. It's easy for me to say, I want green pastures. And in fact, I want a picture of green pastures more than I actually want the experience of being with God. And that is a temptation, I think, when we come to such a rich place as this. But what we need to see here are a picture of a faithful person being completely and intimately cared for by a protect and protected by a possessive and loving God. The protection and caring provision lead the faithful person to experience peace and produce praise in the name of God. The truth that God expresses in verse 1 is given shape and image as he considered the idea of a good shepherd and a good host. He's protected from predators and he's given everything he needs. And that's the focus. So can you agree with David this morning? When you picture God, can you attest to his protection and provision in your life through the blessings in the valleys? Have you seen God as the, your only hope for what you need? And your only shield. Well, if you're a Christian this morning, we can. He's our good provider. He's our Savior. Well, as we move towards the end here, I want to consider again the, the Jim Carrey quote. That when we take a picture, life stops. That it's easy to be content with just that picture, but we want the real thing. I want relationship. And that's what David is looking for, what David is wanting as he moves into the end of this passage. So if a picture is worth a thousand words and an experience is worth a thousand pictures, what's the experience that David is attesting to? Well, we see at the end here, we see that he's attesting to an experience of what he knows to be true of God. As he considers these images, he has the confidence that there's the promise of David, David's experience of God, eternal goodness and mercy in God's presence. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a sermon by uh, Kevin DeYoung where he talks about a cartoon he saw. He's a kid, it's a Christian cartoon, and he says it was this woman named Shirley. He doesn't remember a lot of it, but there's a woman named Shirley, and she has two dogs. And the dogs' names are goodness and mercy. And the idea is everywhere she goes, goodness and mercy are like, ha, ha. And they just want to be with her. They pursue her. They chase her. They're the type of dogs that when you open the door, they like lap up on your thing. Like, get down, get down, get down. You're overwhelming me. That is the description 
of what surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It's not just that I have it. It actually, in the word here in Hebrew, means that it pursues me. It finds me. It's everywhere I go. That is what David is confessing here. He comes full circle. He is praising God now as he prayed to him to con in considering the valley. He is saying that goodness and mercy are pursuing him. Why? Because he has a good and faithful protector. So what is the end result of having a God like this? Joyful dependence. David wants to be in God's presence. He wants to be identified as sheep. He wants to belong in God's household. Oh, friend, this is the question I'm asking myself with conviction and hope this morning. Is that what you want? You want joyful dependence upon God. Do you want his namesake to be made much of by you following him? Do you want to belong in the household of God forever? Well, finally, how is this possible? How can we experience the goodness and mercy all the days of our life? How can we dwell in the house of Yahweh? Well, let's work backwards through the psalm as we close. From the experience of David to the pictures, who is your host and shepherd this morning? Who is your host and shepherd this morning? We read Psalm, I mean, we read John 10. Christ describes himself as the good shepherd. He laid down his life for his sheep. If you're a Christian this morning, you know that he's protected you from the wrath you deserve as a sinner. By not only serving as your protecting shepherd, but actually becoming the sacrificial lamb without blemish on your behalf to eradicate the wrath of God, shepherd and lamb. Likewise, he's provided you with his righteousness. He leads you through the Holy Spirit to what is good for you, these good places that are lasting and gives you everything you need. He's also prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. He actually has prepared a table before you when you were his enemy. And not only was he that gracious host who's prepared, prepared you a cup overflowing and anointed your head and sat you at this table, you know what he also is? He actually is the meal in the new covenant. He actually is not only host, but he's the bread and the wine by which you can enjoy. And that's who we have in Jesus Christ this morning. Therefore, if you know Christ, you can experience God as your shepherd. You can experience him as your host. You can have the peace of his presence and the constant pursuit of his goodness and mercy, whether you be at still waters or whether you be in the valley of the shadow of death. You shall not want because he gives you what you need and leads you where is good for his name's sake. Let's praise him now. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Even though we are familiar with it, God, may it lead us to know you in full experience and to live in response to who you are. God, you are deserving and your name is deserving of full praise. May we trust and be dependent upon you. Christ's name. Amen.